Father, we pray that you would help us to be bold, not only in our faith, but in being a believer for those who aren't. That we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we are willing to share your word. That we don't shrink back. That we go on to full maturity. That there is nothing we lack. We know this is your will for us. And we pray that you would bring it to fruition. Even though we may be kicking and screaming along the way and our flesh just wants us to deny the spirit and the spirit wars against the flesh. Help us to have those daily victories, Lord, as we trust in you. And for your word, we ask that you would bless it, you would use it, you would plant it in our hearts and have it multiply. And all this, Lord, we ask you would do it for your kingdom and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. How do you get a middle schooler to clean their room? How do you get a toddler to be obedient and not simply go against everything that you have to say? There's a couple of ways you can do it. You can either just set them down. I'll I'll use the name Tommy. Tommy. No, I better not use that name. I know somebody named Tommy. How about uh, um, Cleophas? There we go. Cleophas, I want you to sit down and I want you to listen to me and this is what you're going to do. And it's a toddler and the toddler's going, uh-huh, okay. And it's like they didn't hear anything you had to say, no instruction whatsoever, and they just go off and do what they want to do. Then the next step is what? Raise your voice a little bit. Cleophas, come here. Didn't I talk to you? Don't you understand what I told you to do? Yes, daddy. And they, they look at you, okay. But they start it and then they get distracted and they go off and they do something else and they're not completing the task which you have given them to do because you're training up a child in the way that they should go. And when they're old, they'll not depart from it. If you train them to be neat, they'll be neat when they grow up. If you train them to follow the Lord, they'll follow the Lord when they grow up. But then they get into this teenage age. And sleep becomes more abundant and lethargy seems to take over. And then they get this attitude. They want to talk to you a little bit. And they get a little sharp and curt when they respond. And then what do you do right back? You get a little sharp and curt with them. And I brought you into this world and I can take you out. And I can make another one just like you. And you can, you can do stuff like that with those kids. And then, and then they start growing up and they get responsibility and then they get their first paycheck and they're shocked and their eyes wide open because of the taxes that are taken out of that and you're going (laughs) welcome to reality and as you raise your kids and those kids have kids you start laughing at your kids and their kids and how they react and and then your kids come back to you and they shake their head and say i am so sorry that i gave you such a problem growing up and you're just laughing and you watch them struggle through these things. The goal for a believer is to go on to maturity. That's the goal. If we don't involve ourselves in doing that, who do we become like or who do we remain like? We remain like that toddler or that adolescent. We never move beyond that. And if we do that, If that was in real life, we would call that a tragedy. If it's spiritual life, we have a tendency just to overlook it and say, well, you know, that's Cleophas. That's who he is. And we ought not to do that. 
we ought to make sure we're moving on. Now, Paul the Apostle, when he's dealing with the Corinthian church, he expressed how much he loved him, as I've told you the past couple of weeks. And he, he goes through the points that they are doing and how they are gifted and, and they are his glory, that type of thing, because he spent 18 months there ministering to them. And when all of that was taking place, he was pouring himself into them. But then he left after that, and after he left, there were divisions, there were factions, there were grumblings, there were arguments taking place between them, and even the gifts that God had so graciously given to them were being used against each other or to promote someone else. This idea of pride and and clinging to one teacher over another, and we have been over that. But he continues with this and talks about how he came to them. Because if you know where Corinth is, if you looked on a map, Corinth is in the country of Greece. If you went directly north, you would run into Macedonia. If you went directly north and also to the east, you would run into Thessalonica. If you were at the city of Corinth and you went due east, you would run into Turkey. And from Turkey, of course, that's across the Mediterranean, you go down to Israel. So Paul made this trip going all the way through Turkey and all the way through Thessalonica and Berea. And today, if you look at that, of course, course, Athens is north and east of Corinth in Tripoli. Uh, If you guys remember the, uh, what is it, the Marine Corps hymn, the shores of Tripoli, something like that. And that was because of the Muslim invaders down there. They, they went to Tripoli. Well, that's just a little bit south and a little bit west of the city of Corinth. And when you get to Corinth, there is this narrow place, kind of like the Panama Canal. And they, today they have a canal going through there where ships can go through and up towards Greece instead of going all the way around this big part of the, the area of Greece. It comes out like a big island. I think they call it an isthmus. Uh, that is there but that's where Corinth was and all the trading would go through there so it was a major hub it's kind of like San Diego San Francisco Los Angeles for all of the Pacific you come over here and you hit one of those three cities if you're going to bring something from China if you go up to Long Beach and you see that uh, that bay up there and all the cranes that are up here in our port district down here, which Alan works at, and they have a big crane down there. You know, they, they're they taking stuff off and the, the car haulers that come over from Japan. I mean, it's a major thoroughfare and that's what Corinth was. So everybody would pass through Corinth is what they would do going on to other parts of Europe. And so Paul arrives there. Now in Greece, what was Greece known for they were known for not only being a trading center not only the goddess Aphrodite and the temple the the sex temple that was there but also they were known for philosophy Greek philosophy you had Pythagoras which was from 570 to 459 BC Socrates after that 470 to 339 Plato after that 428 to 347, and Aristotle, 384 to 322. And so they would love to sit around 
and philosophize. They would want to talk. They would want to have these conversations and what was the best thing to do for life. And they would go through reason and they would follow the train that Solomon took of examining everything and coming up with little colloquialisms or little proverbs and to guide life. And they had particular lifestyles that were there. There were the Stoics and there were the Epicureans, for instance, that, that came to be uh, in the area of Greece. And this is before... Paul got into this area. So they would sit around and they, they actually had a place they went to. And that place they went to was called the Areopagus. And it's mentioned in Acts chapter 17. And they would have these statues to all these gods that would be up there. And this one particular statue that was not there had a pedestal. They didn't want to leave out any gods. And so they said, this is the uh, tribute to the unknown god And so there would just be nothing on this pedestal that was right there. And, of course, Paul used that in Acts chapter 17. And he goes, I see you're religious in every way. And so the Greek philosophers at that time were sitting down listening to him. "Mm -hmm, Yes, we are religious people. We have all these gods. We are a philosophical people. And so then Paul says, but I want to talk to you about this God, this unknown God. And all of a sudden he just captured their attention. And he started talking about the unknown God, the creator of the universe. And, mm, oh, you could probably hear the mmms and the ohs going through the crowd. And everybody's kind of sitting around. And, and it's a place like a, an amphitheater where you could hear somebody speak about this. And so Paul was doing that. And then half the people said, we want to hear you more on this. When they talked about the resurrection or when he talked about it. But then when he did mention the resurrection, some of the people go, oh, pshaw, no, ah, there's no such thing as a resurrection. And other people said, no, we want to hear you more about this. And it actually named some of the people. Uh, I think one is Diosthenes that was there, and he wanted to hear more what Paul had to say. And so he engaged the community there. Now, when he went there, he had some problems. After doing all that, he ended up having some difficulties there. So he left, and he went alone over to Corinth. Now, imagine you, you're serving God, and you're going, God, how can I be a witness for you? Well, let me go to the city over here. Didn't really know anybody in the city. He got to know Aquila and Priscilla, who were also tent makers, and he went into business with them for 18 months. He didn't take advantage of the church, taking money from the church to provide for himself and his physical needs, but he worked as a tent maker, and I think knowing some type of skill is good, no matter who you are, if you work in an office or work outside of an office, having a skill is always beneficial, and Paul used that. So he went alone, but he didn't, when he arrived in Corinth, do necessarily what he did in Athens. He didn't sit down and start going through philosophy, the philosophy of God. <clears throat> there were a couple of people that would have been uh, in Corinth as well as in Athens that would have been uh, the people called Stoics and I said Epicureans, these two people. Now a Stoic w- was one who thought that, and that's where we get the word Stoic. You're very Stoic is where you fold your hands and you're very quiet and your demeanor is very even and you don't say too much and your emotions don't go way off on some flying handle and You are very calm and serene most of the time, and virtue is the highest calling, and that's what brings happiness. 
So a stoic would just be that, if you understand what the word stoic means or stoicism. And so you, you weren't going off the rails. Um, Epicurus, on the other hand, the man who started Epicureanism, uh, he thought pleasure is the highest of heights you can reach. Whatever you found to be involved in that brought you pleasure, that's what you're supposed to do. Now, just give you a little side note, pleasure. There are certain foods that we like, certain foods that we gravitate towards. There's those foods like chocolate and candies and cheesecakes and you know baked goods and maybe it's a steak for you maybe it's a honey baked ham or turkey and stuffing you know all these foods we like those and when i was growing up we we had a a sandwich that i was introduced to by my grandmother and it was a white bread mayonnaise miracle whip to be specific peanut butter and bananas and it was a banana sandwich, and it was an Epicurean delight. We would bite in, oh, you wouldn't think it'd be so good, but it was good. It's kind of like bacon on a maple bar. You know, it's like, wow, that's kind of unusual, salty and sweet. Well, this, is, this kind of has that flavor to it, the peanut butter and the Miracle Whip and the white bread and the bananas, and oh, it's just an Epicurean delight. So if you were an Epicurean, you would say, Show me anything that might bring me pleasure and I'll be involved in it. And that's what they did. So you had the Stoics that said, no, virtue. And then you had the Epicureans, no, pleasure. They're going back and forth. And those people were all in Corinth. Now, Paul didn't go to them and talk about the benefits of Stoicism as opposed to the downside of Epicureanism. He didn't deliver to them this bout of wisdom. You need to follow this because we have reasoned ourselves here. He didn't do that at all. This is what he did. Verse 1 of chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. My message and preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Now, he later on, he got to know some of the people there, and of course, Apollos, who was a Jew came down and he was a learned individual. He was very effective in arguing for the gospel and and he could put down the Judaizers and put them where they belong, you know, just in the dregs of society with what they believe that you know nothing type of thing. I'm, I'm giving you the vernacular, how we would do it. But that's, and it talks about him in Acts chapter 18. It says, meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man and thorough in the knowledge of the scriptures he had been instructed in the way of the lord and he spoke with great fervor and talked about jesus accurately in verse 27 of chapter 18 it says when apollos wanted to go to achaia the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him on arriving he was a great help to those who by grace had believed for he vigorously refuted the jews in public debate proving from the scriptures that jesus was the christ so he was more that type of individual who would sit down and reason with people and argue from the scriptures of course paul could easily do the same thing but apparently apollos was more erudite he was 
the man's man, and he could argue effectively. And so you had both. God's provided both. But Paul's talking about how he came in weakness, fear, and trembling. Now, this weakness that Paul had, you would think, well, he was just being humble. No, the, the word that is used for weakness here is sickly. He was probably sickly. We know that he had an issue a thorn in the flesh that is talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. And it is believed he had an issue with his eyes. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 15, or in verse 15, it says, What happened to all of your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. <coughs> and he also talks in another place about writing with large letters. So he probably had some type of eye ailment. I don't know about you, but if you get like a pink eye or something like that, or you get the, I don't want to be too graphic, but the oozing coming out of the eyes, and you need some eye drops, and it's it's just miserable. Well, he had this thorn in the flesh, and many people believe it was his eyes based on Scripture, but we don't know for sure. There's been a lot of speculation about it. But this word weakness means he was probably sickly. So imagine Paul, probably a smaller guy, unimpressive, maybe didn't have a lot of hair, maybe a little rickety, and and he'd show up and talk, and his words weren't too weighty, he was kind of unimpressive, and on top of that, he may have had an oozing eye problem. And he goes, ew, that's the apostle? But the guy was powerful, he walked in the power of God and the power of the Spirit. And so he says, I've come to you in weakness. He also said, I've come to you in fear. Now this word fear is the original word phobo, where we get phobia, which means he was exceedingly afraid. I don't know if you've ever had a panic attack, but that's what he was experiencing. He had a phobia of getting before the people and talking with them. So he is sickly. He had a phobia of some type that was causing him to be afraid and then trembling. This word for trembling is quaking. He would be shaking. So put all that together. Not too impressive to look at. Not a great speaker. Probably an eye problem. Couldn't really relate to a lot of people really well to just convince them like Apollos. On top of all of that, he's kind of shaking a little bit, little, you know, God, why did you pick him? Why didn't you pick somebody handsome and debonair? And, but that's who God chose. He, no, I'm going to use this guy. This guy is perfect. He's broken in the body and that's the person I can use. And so Paul, he wrote most of the New Testament, 13 books, as I have said before, but that's how he came to them. And When he wrote, his letters were fantastic. Of course, we have the New Testament. We know how he wrote. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, it says, For some say his letters are weighty and forceful. But in person, he is unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. So much for homiletics. Do you guys know what homiletics is? It's the study of preaching. And everybody, if, if they go to seminary, they have to go through a homiletics course. Hermeneutics is the study of interpretation. Homiletics 
is the study of preaching. And you go through books written about how to preach, and this is what you're supposed to do, and you're supposed to know the people that you are, uh, be familiar with the people you are delivering the message to, and they have Toastmasters, where you can go to Toastmasters and you can learn to speak before people. And you gotta throw some humor in there, you gotta make some application, you have to have some illustration, and all of those things make for a good speaker. Paul was not any of that. And he came in, but his letters, ho! Oh, They were powerful, and they were forceful, and we have 13 of them. And so, you see who God is using here, and how he used him? He didn't use somebody who was at the pinnacle of his career. He said, no, I need to find somebody who is nice and lowly, somebody who is not going to be looked at as far as his outward makeup is concerned. And the reason God did this is verse 5. So that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Now he's making this point because there were already divisions amongst the people. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. And he goes, no, you're not supposed to have your faith rest on an individual. You're supposed to have it rest on Jesus Christ. And what are these individuals? They're nothing In the scheme of things, God just uses them as a tool in his hand as they become submissive to him. Now, this is good for us because this represents how we're supposed to present Christ to the world. If we want to polish ourselves and, and, you know, if, if you wanted to go to speak to somebody at an institution, they want to know how many letters you have behind your name what colleges or universities you have gone to, where you've studied, where you have traveled. They interview you in order to make sure you are at the caliber that they desire in this world to speak and address things to other people. Well, again, Paul, he studied under Gamaliel. He was smart in the scriptures, but everything else just did not apply. And so with that context that I've given you where Paul left Athens alone, he came to Corinth, he needed a place to live, he eventually needed to get a job, and he did with Aquila and Priscilla. He started in a very quiet fashion. And after a while, Timothy and Silas met Paul in Corinth, and then they were able to bring some relief, and so he was able to go out and do a little more in the community over that 18-month period. And when those two arrived, the work increased greatly. But he, when he went there... He's not sure what he would find. He didn't have an advanced team taking care of all the logistics. You know, if you do a crusade or something like that, you have to have that. You have to get all the churches together. He wasn't accompanied by fellow follow-up counselors and musicians. That didn't happen for him. He didn't have a ministry budget. He had to work. You know, and he did that for 18 months there. He didn't begin by preaching on the street corner. He didn't do that. He started doing just the one-on-one. He arrived after that difficult struggle in Athens, and the Areopagus and the Stoics and the Epicureans who were all there. That's, that's all true. But let's relate that to us. Does God want us to reach somebody else with the gospel, with the wisdom of God? Does he want us to do that? I think we can all confidently say, yeah, I think so. Not just family, but we're to reach out beyond family parameters and find somebody and constantly be looking. That's what God wants us to do. So God has placed us, we know, 
that in the book of Acts, we have been born for a particular time, particular place, particular city, so that we might have the best chance of being saved. Well, he did that also so you would meet other people and allow them the chance to be saved. He wants us to be used to do that. Now, God could do it, but he said, no, I'm going to use all of us is what he's going to do. And so we have a place we live. We have a job. We have a neighborhood. We have people of influence that we run across. We have people of no influence that we run across. And he wants us to interact. You know, these, there was a time there in the 80s where you could buy a home inside of a gated Christian community. So you could raise your kids in an environment that was Christian, quote-unquote. I believe that's a tremendous disservice to the world in getting the gospel out there. There are uh, Christian bands whose parents uh, switch foot. The parents raise these kids to interact with the world, and that's why they're a crossover band. They go to youth venues and they, they sing at those in churches and they also cross over into the world. So they're doing both and that's how they were raised to do that. They were raised from very small age and, and of course they're a, a successful band which is doing that and that's an example as well for us. But Paul went to the world. He went out. He didn't wait for them to come to him. And that's hard, that's difficult, because we don't like to interact with two people. I even said something to my wife the other day, and I caught myself afterwards. <clears throat> Booked a flight um, on the way to uh, Africa, and we're looking at the seats. You know, you want to get a good seat. You don't want to be in a sardine can, you know, in the back, and the ultra economy, that type of thing. And, and so I wanted just a little bit more leg room. You know, it's like a 10-hour flight, and I, I just need some room. And so I'm looking for the seats, and I, I want an aisle seat right there. And I see this two seats next to the window are taken, and there's a third seat there. I said, Give me that seat because the other two seats are probably a couple, you know, and I'm probably going to want to sleep. I'm not going to want to talk to them being a, a chatty Billy, you know, on, on the flight there. And then I thought, what am I talking about? If they want to talk about Christ, I should engage them. And maybe I should be nice to them, that type of thing. Because, you know, if it's a couple, they have a tendency to sequester themselves and just talk to each other. And, and you know, the elbow, you know, the rule on a plane like that, right? The person in the middle gets both arms. The person on the window side gets the arm next to the window. And the person on the aisle gets the arm on the aisle. And nobody puts their dirty feet up on your chair from the back side, you know, that type of thing. So there's etiquette that's in there. But that what a perfect place to talk to somebody. You're in a plane. You're there for hours. You give them the gospel. Where are they going to go? They're not going to go anywhere, you know. So you can talk with them during that time. God sets these things up. And, you know, so I need to start praying for the people I'm going to meet on the plane and maybe give them the gospel as well. And so God gives us these opportunities. He wants us to reach out to others, give them the gospel, and hopefully win them over, not by our superior intellect, but hopefully it's because the power of God is working in our ability to speak and make positive arguments and a defense for the gospel. That's why God sets us up. That's why God sends us to different places. Now, Paul understood this. The people didn't understand that, and they were looking to the rulers of the day. In verse 6, 
We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. That's quoting Isaiah 64, 4. But verse 10 says, God has revealed it to us by his spirit. <clears throat> and so God has this secret wisdom. I, I don't know if I mentioned this to you or not, but this this wisdom of God, there's this individual that I'm talking to about uh, God and his spirit and, and the things that we should know and the things that we shouldn't know. And God has revealed things to us by his spirit. In the Old Testament, things were not revealed. Things were hidden. And this individual that I've been talking to about proper doctrine, he come, I asked him, how do you interpret scripture? And hopefully I haven't told you this already, but I asked him, how do you interpret scripture? And he said, well, if it's not in the Old Testament, I reject it. I, I don't follow it. I said, really? And he said, yes. I said, you know, the church is not mentioned in the Old Testament. It is a mystery. And it was revealed in the New Testament. I said, you disavow the church? You don't think the church should exist? You, you think it's bad doctrine? Is that what you think? And of course, he had to stop. Oh, wait a second. Maybe that's not a good way to interpret stuff if it's not in the Old Testament. It's like the church of Christ that says you cannot use instruments to sing inside of a church because they're not mentioned in the New Testament that's an argument from silence, therefore, no instruments. Everything is a cappella. That's a faulty way to interpret Scripture. And so God has this secret wisdom that was not revealed in the Old Testament that has been revealed to us in the New Testament. It's God's secret wisdom. And what is that secret wisdom? He alluded to it in the old testament the crucifixion of jesus christ his death burial and resurrection his ultimate ascension and his uh, exaltation to the right hand of the father and then he's going to come back for us john chapter 14 and first uh, thessalonians chapter 4 verse 17 and first corinthians chapter 15 verses 50 and 51 the rapture of the church it, it's all there it was hidden in isaiah chapter 26 in the old testament but it was God's secret wisdom. It wasn't revealed. It, in the old, there's a saying, in the Old Testament concealed and the New Testament revealed. And so we have this understanding now and it comes to those who follow after God. Now it goes on to say that it, it, actually back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it talks about the people that were called. Remember we went over this? Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were noble. It chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And like I said before, it was almost an insult to them. But he, he's trying to lead them away from what the world looks at as being a success. And he's saying this is God's secret wisdom. He uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He takes the lowly things, the things that are not, to confound the things that are. And it goes on to say, the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, for 
Who among men knows the thoughts of man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit whom is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. So in that passage from verse uh, 10 through 13... One more time in 14, the Spirit, capital S, is mentioned there. You know, if you start doing a search on the word Spirit in the book of 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, the Spirit, or the Spirit in man, is mentioned 50 times in 41 verses. The Spirit occurs 35 times in 28 verses in 1 Corinthians. Do you think he wants us to catch something that he's saying there? You know that if you repeat something over and over and over, you're trying to get somebody's attention. And some people will look at these passages and they talk about the secret wisdom of God. They talk about the rulers of the world and all that's good to mention. But his point here is the spirit of God. Again, five times. The spirit is mentioned here. He goes on in verse 14 and says, The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, why is he telling him this? Because there are those people we know from the other verses and the other uh, Second Corinthians as well as First Corinthians, the other chapters that are there. There were people in there that were leading the individuals, the Corinthians, astray. And they would not listen to counsel. They were going against Paul. I just read you what they thought of Paul, that his letters are weighty and you know forceful, but he's unimpressive. And so they would talk down on Paul. And these people would call themselves super apostles. Dun, 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 and they had red capes with a big S on the back. And they would come in there, and, and they would try to take over. And the apostle Paul is trying to let them know It's the spirit that appoints individuals. It's the spirit for which we are to be led. We're not to look at the ways of the world. So if you're in tune with the spirit of God, you will know this secret wisdom which God possesses. If you're not in tune with the spirit of God, you're going to be out there like a ship with no rudder. You're just going to be going around... Well, it looks good. Maybe we should go over here. There's a few less waves. It seems to be sequestered a little bit. But, you know, there's a big sea monster over there, and it's going to gobble you up. And so you're not discerning whatsoever on what to do when it comes to the things of God. And he is pointing out here, you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and he talks about the gifts of the Spirit given by the one and same Spirit. Each individual gift is given by the same Spirit, and he focuses on... The Holy Spirit, because in the entire book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, they are ruled by the flesh in their thinking. And he's trying to transform it where they're paying attention not to Paul, but to the Spirit. Now that is a task. Listening to God's Spirit. And we're going to get to that. It says in verse 15, The spiritual man makes judgment about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. Have you ever heard, do not judge me? Or, no, don't judge me, man. No, the spiritual man makes judgments about all things. 
including politics, including religion, including family, including morality. We make judgments, the spiritual man, the spiritual woman. And we do that based on the word. It goes on to say, verse 16, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. And back in verse 10, it says, but God has revealed it to us by his spirit. If you look at what is being said from verse 10 down to verse 16, and even in chapter 6, verse 11, and chapter 12, the spirit reveals God's secret wisdom, searches all things, verse 10, knows the thoughts of God, verse 11. The spirit is from God, verse 12. The spirit teaches, verse 13. Understanding comes from the spirit, Verse 14, since we have the spirit, we are instructed by him. Verse 16, justified by the spirit, chapter 6, verse 11, and the gifts of the spirit, chapter 12. The focus is on the Holy Spirit of God. That's what God wants us to know. This is not a treatise on servant leadership. Some people will look at 1 Corinthians and say, all these leaders, you know, they weren't doing it right. They weren't be the, being the servants in the division. No, that, it's supposed to be a focus on the Holy Spirit of God. So we see the Holy Spirit is the focus here in just these few verses that we've gone over. But how do we do that? How, how do we listen for the Holy Spirit? In Hebrews chapter 1. You guys familiar with that? In the past, God spoke to us in various ways at various times. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. His son is the word of God. The word of God is illuminated by the spirit of God. The first thing we have to have in order to listen to the spirit is the word of God. If we have the word of God, we've ingested it, we're going through it, we understand what it says. We have it under our belts, so to speak. And once we have it there, then it can be pulled out. If we do not have the spirit of God guiding us of the word of God, which is in our heart, if it's not there, we're just going to be thinking we're listening to ourselves. If something comes up, we, we say, was that God or was that not God? What, what's the deal with that? Who am I supposed to pay attention to? And I want to give you some examples of how this works. I had two this last week, two examples of how this worked. I was in the youth group. And in the youth group, I, I had my study all prepared. We're talking about heaven and hell, and I'm having them fill things in. You know, the high schoolers, they like to do that. They're like, okay, and you write a sentence, and there's a word that goes in there. So they fill in the word, and they, you should see them. They all bow their head down at once, and they write that thing down. It's, okay, I, I can get this. I can grab hold of this information. It's all good. Before I went into it this time, we had one of the kids do a devotion. And as he did a devotion, it was great devotion. You know, I'm having a couple of them do devotions. And then I felt I was supposed to say something instead of going right into the study. And so what I did, you can do this. Turn to, hopefully I won't run out of time here. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 4 and hold your finger there and turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 10 through 12. I'm just going to tell you what they say, and you can mark these and go back and look at them later. But I, I felt I was supposed to bring this to them. I said, Second Peter chapter 3, 
verses 10 through 13, and I had one of the kids read it. It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live a holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. Speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and elements will melt in the heat. So we got that, right? What's going to happen to the earth? It's going to blow up. It's going to go away. Now, if you go back to Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes it says, generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. How long is the earth going to remain? It says forever. You go back to Second Peter, how long is the earth going to remain? Don't know, but it's going to blow up. It seems like there's a contradiction. So I, I gave this to them, and I've talked to them about this before, but I just felt I was supposed to bring it up again. You know, just, you kind of, Pay attention, God, am I, I'm listening for you. This is what I'm supposed to do. And so I went on to say, look, there are people that will tell you the earth is going to last forever. The Jehovah Witnesses, they say that. It's going to last forever. And when I took Jehovah Witnesses to Second Peter chapter 3, well, they didn't have a reason to explain why that was there. But I said, people will come along and they'll take the scriptures and they'll twist it to get their own job, their own desires done. I said, I want you to be aware of this. And I gave them instruction. If in, they're in a church, I said, as they grow up, they're not going to forever be coming to the youth group or to this church here. And I, I said, when you go to a church, if you find some doctrine that's not right, I said, you need to go to the pastor, go to him one-on-one and talk to him, show him the scripture and do that. And they understood. Okay, and I said, now, you, you want to do it not in a condemning way. Don't come up and say, you are wrong. That scripture doesn't say that. I said, don't do it that way. Just go to the scripture and point it out to them. And so I found out this one girl had a question if she did the right thing. She came up to me afterwards, and I asked for permission to share the story. She went to a church, and in the church, the pastor started speaking in tongues, and Speaking in tongues is a spiritual gift. There's no question about that. I believe in the spiritual gifts. But then there was no interpretation. And then everybody started speaking in tongues. And there was no interpretation. And this girl had been through this before in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And it says in the scripture, and she opened up the scripture. She gave it to the pastor and said, In the church, two or at the most three are supposed to speak. And someone must interpret. It's an imperative. And if there's no interpreter... The speaker must remain quiet and speak to himself or to God. So it says, two are at the most three, that's it. And so he point, she pointed that out to him, and he goes, that was for back then. And I, I said, really? And then the pastor said, everybody can speak in tongues. I said, really? She goes, yeah. And she went down to the bottom of the passage there, and it says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all evangelists are all pastor teachers do all speak in tongues do all interpret and it's a rhetorical question the answer is no i said did you show him that and she said yes i showed him that too i said you know what you should have said to him does that mean because he said everybody can speak in tongues and i said you should ask him does that mean everybody can be an apostle too does that mean everybody can be a pastor as well and she was wondering did i say the right thing and it was confirmed going through that little teaching about the proper interpretation of Scripture and beware and how to handle it. And she did it right. 
And God wanted that to be confirmed with her. This other thing was, God has been talking to me for about a week or so to go do something. I can't share the details of that, but he, he told me to go do something. And I'm going, yeah, 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 I'll get to it. You know, and I'm just kind of putting it off. And I finally decided, okay, okay, I'm going to do it. And so I turned my vehicle and I went to where I was supposed to go. And I, I did that. And I thought, well, just go. No, get out and do what you're supposed to do. And so, right. So I did that. And to make a long story short, because I did that, it was such a blessing. I mean, I walked away just going, wow, that, that was so good. I think I, I may have stopped some error. And it, it's just because I was listening. I, you know, and I argued with God a little bit, the spirit of God, but I want to pay attention. But if he asks me to do anything that's not in the word, I'm falling into error. That's why we have to have the word and then the spirit will speak to us and ask us to do things. And if we don't do them, we are being in the flesh. We're being just like the Corinthian church. As we close this out before we receive communion, I would ask you guys, are you listening for God? Can you hear him because you have the word of God inside? Are you ingesting God's word? And if the Spirit is speaking you to, to do something, do you know it's Him because it comports with His Word? It goes right alongside. Yes, that's a thing you should do. And then are you resisting it? I would ask you, what has God asked you to do? And I ask that in a blanket fashion because I know God is speaking constantly. And He's speaking constantly to everybody. But as in the book of Revelation, he says, those who have an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God is speaking to every one of you and what you're supposed to be doing. And I know if you're like me, you're resisting. No, I'm not going to do that. Don't make me do that. And then he says it a couple more times. And if you say, no, okay, then he pulls his blessing away. And you don't want that. You don't want him pulling his blessing away. So is he talking to you about someone, to visit someone, to study, to read, to pray? Some relationship is not right. Is he telling you to extend forgiveness to somebody? How about being obedient in something, offering correction or being corrected, stopping a behavior or an attitude? Is he talking to you about one of those things? If you just sat for even 10 seconds in silence, you know he's talking. And is it what the word has to say? Does it comport with that? See, that's how you pay attention to the spirit of God. And that's what Paul is trying to tell the people. Don't rely on an individual. Rely on God's spirit. Now, what we're going to do at this time is the worship team is going to come up. Once we start singing the song, we're going to lower the lights in the middle. And we're going to receive communion. And we receive communion to remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And of course, when he left, he gave us his spirit to be with us, to comfort us. And he told us that we will never be without his spirit. My prayer for you is that you were able to subdue the flesh to the point where you hear his spirit speaking to you and you follow through in obedience because we can be obedient because he has conquered sin. He has given us power over the sin in our lives to subdue the flesh. Now, we won't be 100% successful. 
because the flesh has a tendency to resurrect every day, maybe even every hour. And Christ says, crucify it over and over and over. So that's my prayer for you, that you are able to hear God's voice and that you ingest his word. So as we're singing this song, if you feel that, Lord, I need to come to the altar and I need to say, you know, I'm so sorry for what I have done. I'm living my own life and not the life you have asked me to live. If you need to do that, this is the time to do it, to come to the altar. So if you guys would lower the center lights there.